Hello, and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System and an internal medicine physician. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the System Director for Advanced Practice Providers. And today we have Dr. Weber on to talk to us a little bit about peripheral arterial disease. Dr. Weber, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited about talking about this uh, disease that we just like so much, and we're so uh, involved in it and passionate about it. Great. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your clinical practice? So my name is uh, Jorge Weber. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. Uh, I did my gen- uh, after doing medical school. I did my general surgery in Michigan, and then uh, I did a fellowship here in uh, uh, University of Tennessee in vascular surgery. I decided to stay here, and so I joined Baptist uh, Medical Group. Uh, we have a great uh, vascular team. I work with my other partners are Dr. Uh, Wolf, Dr. Craig Stickley, as well as Dr. Maury. I've been in practice for a year and a half. And, uh, you know, as vascular surgeons, uh, I, uh, I, we specialize in all the arteries and veins, the body, except the heart and the, uh, and the brain. So our practice is basically, you know, all the way from carotid arteries to uh, abdominal aortic aneurysms, peripheral uh, uh, dialysis. But one of the main goals of our daily practice is basically peripheral disease and uh, limb salvage. That's what we do. We do a combination of both, both open as well as minimally invasive procedures. Thank you again for, for joining. And thank you again for being part of uh, the Baptist Medical Group. So just, you know, let's start off with the very basics. What is uh, what is PAD or, or PVD? And, and you know, why do some people call it peripheral arterial disease and peripheral vascular disease? Does it matter? No, I don't think it matters. So quite int- uh, so quite easy. Uh, uh, so, you know, all the, ar- the arteries carry blood from the heart to a different part of the body. When we talk about PAD, a peripheral disease, is blood to the arteries of your extremities. So atherosclerosis is just it's a systemic disease of large and medium-sized arteries. And what happens is there's causes luminal narrowing, or if it can be focal or diffuse. And, uh, and this is due to accumulation of all the lipids and fibrous materials, what we call a plaque. And, uh, and it's interesting to know that this, this is between the intima and the medial layers of the vessel. So when there's lack of blood flow to the, muscle, to the muscles of the legs relative to its metabolism, this results in what we call this pain and the affected muscles. This is dangerous because this progression can lead to irreversible damage to the point that could be nerve and tissue loss. So what's the prevalence of peripheral vascular disease? So worldwide, we're talking about uh, it's between 3 and 12%. In, in Europe and in North America, there's approximately 27 million people that are affected uh, from PAD. The majority of these individuals, approximately 70% of them, live in low to medium income regions of the world. In the United States, PAD is a PAD of a patient with 40 years old. 40 years is expected to be approximately 4.3%, and this leads to approximately 5 million uh, people. Uh, this is much uh, common in older people and different people with ethni- different ethnicities as well and families with atherosclerosis. Uh, African Americans are approximately two-fold increase of getting uh, PAD as well. 
So what about the prevalence in our service area? Do we see a high prevalence in this area? Oh, I think we see so much prevalence in, uh, in the Memphis and Mississippi area. Uh, first of all, there's a high community, uh, high uh, population of African Americans. There's a high population, I think, of smokers, and a lot of these people, like it says, it's low-income uh, uh, wage people. So there's, I think, a lot of low-income people here, and uh, to the point that when we see these patients with PAD, a lot of the time we see them at a point that is too advanced, and uh, a lot of these people would end up having amputations. So. You touched on a few of the risk factors already, um, hmm. and and obviously, you know, where we live, you know, we have a high prevalence of all those things you just mentioned, um, you know, smoking, diabetes, obesity. Uh, what what other um, risk factors are there for, for PVD? So there's a couple ones, you know, obesity uh, as well as uh, ethnicity and the family history of PAD. But the four main factors, there's only, you know, the big fours are, I think, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol. Now, we do see a lot of those people here. Let me tell you then. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So what does that clinical presentation look like? So what are symptoms that I need to be looking for? So it's, this is a very interesting. A lot of these patients that you're seeing have to have no complaints at all. Approximately 20 to 50% of these patients are asymptomatic. But you always, but, how, but whenever you see that the blood fail, the, sorry. So, however, if the supply to the blood fails to satisfy the, uh, their metabolic demand, that's when they start getting pain. So, the number one thing that these patients have are claudication. So, a lot of these claudication means that the patients, you know, doctor, I go to the mailbox and I can't walk to the mailbox because I just get this severe pain on my legs. <clears throat> that's something that, uh, you know, that turns a flag that is most likely peripheral uh, disease. Claudication, uh, these people walk, get pain, but when they rest for a couple of minutes, then they feel fine and then they start walking and then get pain as well. Uh, other symptoms that you see is uh, patients with rest pain. Uh, this is when it's more advanced. And these patients start getting pain in their foot and as well as their calf when they start like sleeping in the middle of the night. They say that they wake up with severe cramps in the legs and the foot as well. Those are the main symptoms that we see with uh, peripheral disease. Can you see this in the upper extremities as well? Not much, no. Uh, a lot of these in the upper extremities, uh, when we uh, start talking about peripheral diseases, uh, maybe when the subclavian arteries or the brachial arteries get stenosed or disease, these patients with present with arm fatigue. And, you know, a lot of the pa our patients are not active, but you'll see this like in a picture or uh, somebody that cleans houses for a living, that they start getting a lot of pain when they're using the arm, and that's sort of arm claudication. And that's what we see, but not not as much, not as much as lower extremities. So most of the patients are going to be asymptomatic, but if they, if, they, if they do have symptoms, they'll have that claudication. And a lot of our patients are, are not as active as we would like them to be. So if they're not active, they're not going to, you know, show as many of these um, Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, anything else you look for on the history and physical exam? Anything, especially on the physical, if the patient was complaining of claudication? It's important for these patients. Uh, I'm telling you, when they go to their primary doctor, cardiologist, podiatrist, take your shoes off and take your socks off. That's the number one thing. And go and get for get pulses. Get all the extremities. Get your brachial. Get your radial pulses. Get your femoral pulses as well as uh, 
tibial pulses. And once you start getting that, you see that uh, the, uh, take a look at the legs, right? Uh, changes in these like extremity appearance depends on the duration of the severity. So when you start getting this diminished blood flow, this, the skin becomes quite, uh, uh, this, the skin becomes thin with functional loss of the appendages, the dermal appendages. So that's when you start getting a dry skin, shiny and hairless skin as well. Uh, you can see the nails of these patients. They become brittle, hypertrophic, as well as ridge. It's good to get a good motor and sensory function of their legs as well. Make sure they got good motor and sensory function because uh, as the peripheral disease worsens, they can be they can have some diminished uh, motor as well as sensory function. Uh, what else you see? You, you see some uh, uh, elevation pallor or some dependent rubber in these patients as well. And you can also see cool extremities, delayed capillary refill, or when it's to the point that you can start getting some wounds, non-healing lower extremity ulcers as well, that's when you know that the patient is in trouble. So who should be screened for PAD? So, uh, interesting question. I mean, uh, who should be screened? So, uh, patients who are above 70, 70 years old, those patients should be screened. Age 50 to 69 years old as well with a history of smoking or diabetes. Those patients are 40 to 49 years old with diabetes and at least have other like atherosclerotic problems such as smoking, dyslipidemia, hypertension, homocysteinemia. And uh, patients that also have other disease, a patient that has some coronary disease as well as some renal artery disease, patients that had carotid disease that have had strokes in the past, those are patients that probably need to be screened for PAD. And how do you go about screening these patients? So, as I told you, first thing is good physical uh, and history. You know, ask these patients, hey, uh, how much can you walk for? How long can you walk? Okay. Uh, ask them uh, if they get pain at, in the middle of the night, if they have to wake up, what makes the pain better? What makes the pain worse? And then a good diagnostic screen uh, screening test is a uh, resting ankle brachial index or, or what we call an ABI. It's very simple. You perform it in the at bedside in your clinic and what you do is is a ratio of the ankle systolic pressure divided by the ankle of the by the brachial systolic pressure uh, that you detect with the Doppler probe and uh, that that's the number one screening for uh, ape for peripheral disease. Okay, so that the the ABI is the diagnostic tool that we use to confirm mm -hmm. peripheral ar arterial disease. So that can be done in the primary care setting. Does this need referrals? Who, um, that could be done in a primary care setting. It's quite simple. And, and you get numbers, you know, you get different numbers. If uh, the number one you want from 0.9 to above, if it's 0.9 or less, that's where you start uh, probably, you can, you're pretty sensitive in specificity. There's a high sensitivity and specificity to diagnose patients with PAD. So they wouldn't need to undergo like an angiogram to confirm? Oh, not necessarily. And then if you're suspecting uh, PAD but the patient's diabetic, they're going to have falsely elevated uh, ABIs. That's a patient you can get an ultrasound and just start with a simple ultrasound in the off, uh, it's an outpatient. Okay. So I have confirmed the diagnosis. Now, how do I treat my patient? So you first start with medically, okay? These are patients that you, op you have to optimize from the cardiovascular standpoint. You gotta make sure these patients are either an aspen or plavix or both, right? And then you have to make sure that they are in a statin. A lot of these patients, uh, 
you know, when you put them in a stent, they'll tell you, doctor, but I have a normal cholesterol. And it's been shown that statin actually improved the walking and not, uh, not is, Im- improves walking as well as decreases the rate of amputation. Uh, you got to make sure that their blood pressure is controlled. So, uh, you know, beta blocker or whatever, the, a lot of this time the cardiologists help us with controlling their blood pressure or the primary care physician. And then if the patient has PAD and what we call uh, claudication, you know, sorry, if the patient has claudication, one of the number one things is exercise uh, exercise program. Uh, with these patients, uh, hopefully, we don't. I don't know if here in Memphis we have a supervised exercise program, but you tell these patients to walk. Walk 30 minutes three times a week at least and start walking. And uh, that's how we – and then we see them back in the office in two to three months and see if they have improved. A lot of these patients have improved. And the number one thing is stop smoking. You know, if you stop smoking, they'll get better as well. Okay, so that, that's good to know, you know, as far as the medical management of, of PVD. And, and that kind of gets me back to the screening uh, question we had earlier in risk factors. So, you know, here in the Southeast, we have a lot of patients um, that are going to meet the screening criteria with the right age, diabetes, hypertension, um, you know, and smoking history. And so if I have a patient like that that's not having symptoms of claudication or anything like that, and I already have them on a stat, and I already have them on an aspirin. Why would I screen them for PVD, or what would the additional value be of screening them for PVD if the treatment isn't really, or is there additional therapies I'm going to add on to that patient once the diagnosis of PAD is made? Does that make sense? Yeah, not really, but you have uh, a lot of these PAD patients suffer from other conditions. So if they right. have PAD, they have usually they have a lot of times cardiovascular disease as well as carotid artery disease. A lot of these patients, you can screen them with ultrasound for the carotids, make sure that there's no tight stenosis of the carotids. A lot of these patients that are above 70 to 75 years old with a history of smoking, uh, they can be screened for uh, abdominal aortic aneurysms as well. Okay, so, you know, we have a patient um, on optimal medical therapy uh, for for PVD. at what point would they need any sort of surgical intervention? So uh, not not all the time. I think uh, if they adhere to the medical th- to the medical treatment and exercise and smoking, they will improve. When when we see these patients, what we call lifestyle limiting claudication, when they say, you know what, I can't walk from here to the mailbox, I can't go to the grocery stores, and then they adhere themselves with three months of therapy, but they don't get better. I think those people warrant intervention. Those are people that we can we can start with a diet uh, either with ultrasound. There's other more invasive study like a treadmill testing, or we can see a pulse volume recording like PVRs that we can do other tests in the office. And if you can see a stenosis, then these patients can benefit from a diagnostic angiogram with intervention. Okay. And then obviously sometimes there would need, you know, there may be an acute issue that they need emergent surgical evaluation. When would you need to uh, suspect that? So after claudication, we get what we call critical limb ischemia. These patients are the ones that are having rest pain. Like in the middle of the night, you know, they can't uh, sleep because they're having significant amount of calf pain and foot pain. These patients get an ultrasound and, you know, they have significant amount of peripheral disease. Those patients you want to intervene as well. It's been shown that these patients progress can progress from literally having uh, limb pain, you know, uh, rest pain to having a uh, limb, you know, 
severe uh, wounds as well as ulceration that can lead to limb loss. So these patients want to intervene as well faster than, than later. When patients come to your office or in the ER, a lot of these patients come with an acute limb ischemia. That means that uh, they were doing fine and then they feel this sudden uh, pain in their leg. And the thing that you're going to look for is, you know, no pulses. Uh, you're going to see a cold extremity with decreased motor and decreased uh, sensory function as well. Those are patients that we got to intervene uh, quite fast. Okay, that's helpful. So what's on the horizon? Are there any future developments in diagnosis and management? I think in, uh, I think we're going to get better at medical therapy. Uh, I think we're going to be more aggressive in uh, treating patients medically. Uh, one of the other things is I, I'm a big believer in the exercise program. Uh, there was a I don't know when that it started, but uh, it was this was not covered by insurances before, but now it's covered by insurances. And it's just like a, a cardiac rehab, but instead of cardiac rehab, it's like rehab for your lower extremities. I think we're going to start seeing more people in the future uh, getting referred for uh, what we call uh, exercise programs. I think so. And then as well, we'll get better every time. You know, there's two options. And these patients, you do either endovascular intervention, usually it's our default or we start first with minimally invasive i think as years go by we start getting much better with endovascular intervention to the point that one day we might not do a lot of open procedures which that's the trend and it's that's as hot like it's happening right now well you know this has been very helpful for me this has always been an area where i've kind of struggled to to understand uh, you know, the, the medical management for sure. And then, you know, especially the screening part, I was always confused. So that was, that was helpful to kind of explain what the benefit would be for additionally screening those patients that you already thought you were medically managing appropriately that were at higher risk and why they may need uh, screening for PVD. So I uh, really appreciate you clearing that up. Mm. Um, any other final thoughts or anything you want to leave with the medical staff before we wrap up? I, uh, you know, when we, Limb Salvage is our, is our goal i think is a combination of everybody it's a teamwork you know it has to start from primary care physicians to podiatrists to cardiologists infectious disease people also endocrinologists to you know get better their gl blood glucose as well and it's, i think it's a team combination and if we adhere to that and we create one good team i think the um, the amount of amputations will just go down and that's our goal limb salvage well, thank you again, and, and thank you for everybody for listening to another episode of Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.